And so these human words of suffering that we're reading have become part of God's word to his people, to us. And because of that, they actually restore a sacred dignity to human suffering. It's not that it's welcomed or encouraged or that we are to seek it out, but it is that it's acknowledged and voiced. It is known and understood by God. Lamentations chapter 1 is the the voice of desperation and destitution in the wake of the city of Jerusalem having been razed to the ground. The real pain of the suffering, surviving people is voiced. And in this second chapter, God emerges as the main subject or character. It's he, we read, who has hurled down, swallowed up, slain, poured out his wrath, multiplied mourning and lament. It's the Lord who is the enemy. It's the Lord who is angry. And it's the Lord who is determined to tear down the wall of Zion. Every single line places God and his actions at the center of all that's occurred. He's used Israel's enemies to bring judgment on Jerusalem. And so God's people are faced with a really quite difficult and mystifying truth. What if God is the source of their suffering? What if their humiliation, their destruction, and their degradation was God's will? We're reminded here of Israel's history of rebellion and that the fall of Jerusalem was the consequence of Israel's sin. And so this is God's wrath. Here, how we understand wrath, though, is crucial, not only to our understanding of God's character and his heart, but also the act and the posture of lament itself. You know, God's divine wrath is not God's volatile and uncontrolled anger. It's justice. Israel had violated God's agreement with them. And God's actions here reveal a a constancy, an integrity of character and faithfulness to his own words and to the covenant that he made with his people. God's heart is not to destroy overflowing from God's heart is endless love and mercy. He is love in every perfect way. And he is just in every perfect way. But judgment and mercy are not opposites, as we can often be led to believe. But they are complements. And we're reminded here that lament and prayer and grief are a crucial part of the journey of God's people in a broken world. It doesn't mean that it's okay. It doesn't mean that God is okay or indifferent to hurt and brokenness and pain. But his judgment turns our hearts and our thoughts to where we have turned away from him, where we've been blind or indifferent to, or perhaps even part of, knowingly or unknowingly, the injustice and brokenness and oppression or or crooked values of the systems and the cultures around us. Lamentations 2 reminds us that God 
is faithful to his covenant. His work of judgment and restoration are at his mercy and will. God is just as sovereign in judgment as he is sovereign in restoration. He's our present and our future hope. And you know, sometimes we, we just don't always get it. We, we don't get God. I mean, I wonder, do you always kind of get God and, and why he does the things he does in the, in the way that he does them, in the time that he does them? I, I certainly don't. But God gets asked to lament to him and with him, and he will never discourage us from asking him to show compassion. Your judgment and mercy are not opposites. They're compliments. They're companions and they're friends. And this second chapter also doesn't sort of explicitly speak of future hope and restoration for Jerusalem. It was meant as a tool for public mourning and remembrance. And it's used today as a way of recounting the stories of suffering and tragedy throughout Jewish history, including that of the Holocaust. When such private grief and lament is brought to bear publicly and corporately, the act of suffering actually develops significance. When we weep with others, there we find more to our suffering than our own sense of weakness or or sense of loss. We find a shared importance and significance to what we're going through. And it allows us to see our suffering, to see it, to acknowledge it, and to present it in all its devastating gravity. Lamentations draws God's attention to the present suffering of the people. And it speaks to a present reality rather than a future dream or or course of action. And its city lament, as it's called, is is not a time to, to dream of a better future, but rather to recognize that the city lies in ruins for the people. It's a suffering that is experienced together rather than in isolation. The loss of the home of God's people experienced and mourned collectively as community. And the destruction of of this home, this city that we read of, is real. But I wonder where, for us today, is our city? You know, this isn't an abstract concept for us to think about because injustice and oppression and the abandonment of the poor or vulnerable in our society and in our world is real. Injustice in all its terrible forms is not some abstract concept. It's an all too prevalent and known reality. And so where is our city? The peoples and places for whom we need to draw God's attention, his unwavering and merciful attention. Lamentations chapter two also helps us to change the way that we see ourselves as part of this landscape of lament and suffering. The destruction of Jerusalem, the designated holy place for the presence of God with its glorious temple has been plundered and lies abandoned. The people 
have wept and the worship has been replaced with woe. And the loss remains heavy in the air of chapter 2. And the state it now lies in is contrasted by the descriptions of its former glory that we read in those first eight verses. The force needed to overcome this powerful city was the full force of God's power. Jerusalem believed that as keeper of the temple, surely God would never judge them and his own temple of worship. But verse 9 tells us the law is no more. Jerusalem's uniqueness was based on God's grace, the privilege of providing the altar and the sanctuary, though, has been rescinded. God's people had thought only of the privilege, but not the responsibility. The people of Jerusalem viewed themselves as an exception. And, you know, sometimes as sinful people, we too can have an elevated view of ourselves. Surely we might say there's no reason for God's judgment to fall on me. And so I think lament provides us with the opportunity for humility, not for self-destruction, but for humility. You know, do we hold so closely to our way of, of doing things, our culture, our projects, our programs, our agendas, our uh, style, our way of doing church even, here in the wealthy, comfortable West, that perhaps the alternatives are frowned and looked down upon? Or do we recognize that the places and structures and our own agendas sometimes just need to get out of the way for the presence and the power of Almighty God to give us and all that we do meaning and intention and purpose? Because after all, by his grace and his grace alone do we stand. God is in charge. God is faithful. And God's actions and his character help to change the way we see ourselves and the world around us. The different voices that we hear in chapter 2 and throughout the book stretch us to hear a voice beyond one or the one that we might feel most comfortable with hearing. And the voices are direct and we might sometimes wince at their bluntness as they express their pain. There's more than one voice recorded. Each one is important and given space to breathe and to be heard. And weaved through each voice we hear, if we listen closely enough, is sadness and confession, anger and confusion, and a declaration of God's compassion and promise, even though it's not being felt as the words pour out. Collectively, the voices represent and embody the suffering that is to belong to the whole community. Priests and rulers, children and infants. The suffering of all intricately and intentionally gathered together in the literal poetry of Lamentations. To be infused with significance, both individually and as a sum total of its painful pieces. And in the closing verses of this second poem, the prayer we read, if we look closely, reveals an underlying hope. Verse 19 says, Arise, cry out in the night, as the watches of the night begin. 
Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at every street corner. Even here, even here in the midst of the horror, the exiles can have hope in God's righteousness. His and only his ability to make things right once again. God is true to his unfailing character. He's unfailingly just and unfailingly true. And God will be faithful to the promise of restoration. But there's still an absence of explicit, obvious hope here in Lamentations. One voice that we don't hear is God's. But that doesn't mean he hasn't heard or that he won't respond. Because the unbearableness, the madness, the totally unjustness of suffering and pain has found expression and existence in real, deep suffering. God has never and will never abandon us in the midst of that experience. It's right where he chooses to be time and time again. And it's where he will always choose to be, suffering with us. Because the power of God isn't found in a focus and a fixation on strength, but in suffering and weakness. And that's why we proclaim the Lord's death in words, liturgy, and prayers at the communion table when we stand individually and corporately as the church at this intersection of celebration and suffering. Christ was broken for us. And we're committed as followers of the risen Christ to celebrate his broken body so that we might be united in him for the reconciliation and the hope and the unity that only he can bring. To celebrate we must lament. Because celebration arises out of suffering. And lament is our way of expressing that suffering. And in our world today, here in 2023, Lamentations, in many ways, makes no sense to so many. Because celebration will always be more attractive than having any kind of theology of suffering. You know, whatever is broken or not working in the way we'd like, we want it fixed, and we want it fixed now. You know, we want to we whoop and not wallow in the healthiest sense. We, you know, we have to spread positivity wherever we go, everywhere, all of the time. But life just isn't like that, is it? Not for us, and not for our world. What about, though, What about if we as followers of Christ lovingly and sensitively offered our suffering friends and neighbours, those we love deeply and those we don't even know personally? What if we offered our suffering nation and our suffering world the voice of lament? The voice of lament infused with hope and the opportunity for reconciliation. 
How would it transform our world? How would it transform us?